Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hey ladies, and welcome to Thoroughly Equipped. I'm so happy that you were able to listen into this episode. If you are new, welcome. If you've been following along, you know that this season we have been looking at Jenny Allen's Um, women's conference or women's ministry, the If Gathering. I'm going to take a little break, probably about a month here, which means it'll be about two episodes. Um, And the reason is because we homeschool and August to the mid-September is kind of when I take my time to focus on the homeschooling that we will be doing the semester for the the coming fall. Um, I'd like to get my house in order, you know, all the typical (laughs) homeschooling mom, stay-at-home mom type of stuff that transpires in our house. But so that you have something, I figured, well, I would share with you the workshops that I did recently at a homeschooling conference back in the beginning of August. So today's episode will be the first workshop that I did titled Biblical Education. And two weeks from now, the title, uh, or that episode, is titled Wisdom, the Goal of Biblical Education. Now, I understand that maybe not all my listeners are stay-at-home mothers or even homeschoolers. I I grasp this, but um, I figured that it might be beneficial even for for those who do not homeschool or stay at home to at least get an idea of what biblical education is and maybe um, they could prayerfully consider it and look at how they want to educate their children, what education is, the philosophy behind our world's education, what the world's goal of education is, and to contrast that with looking at it biblically, what education is in the Bible, how God has made or instituted the family to educate and train up children. So I figured I'd just share it with you all. Now, after the break, I do want to get back to the if gathering for this, uh, looking at it this season. We will look at more than just, really more than just the if gathering. We're going to look at the if ministry in, in uh, general, looking at some of the if equip um, videos, along with some if lead conference speaking engagements. Um, and what I want to address in this fourth part of the series is looking at tools that Jenny Allen incorporates into her ministry. Certain tools that I believe are unnecessary. They are um, unneeded. If you hold to or truly believe that 
scripture is not only authoritative but it is sufficient, then bringing in other tools is really just extra biblical and, in my opinion, puts on a, a weight that is not needed for discipleship, for women in discipleship, period. Okay, so I just wanted to give you kind of a heads up to what's coming down the pike for the rest of this season, and I hope you enjoy this. I enjoyed putting it together, and so I'll see you on the other side. Hello, and welcome to the first home education conference and used curriculum sale hosted by Victory Bible Church. It's an honor to, one, represent LEARN and inform you of this wonderful ministry, and two, to speak and give a workshop on home education. My name is Melissa Lex. I am wife to David Lex, mother of two teenagers whom we homeschool, head administrator of the Liberty Education and Resource Network, a co-op ministry of Faith Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Elmer. I am also producer and host of the podcast Thoroughly Equipped, a show for women centered on 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, it never ceases to amaze me the implications of this very verse. In fact, this verse has become the foundation for why I do what I do. It directs my housework, it directs how I homeschool, it directs my marriage, it directs my service for my local church, for LEARN, and of course for my ministry work with the podcast. And so I thought, um, what better topic than this to present to you? What does the truth that God's word scripture is useful for thoroughly equipping the man of God for every good work? What does that have to do with education? So let's actually talk about education. Let's talk about what is education. Look up what is education, and this is the answer you get. The process of receiving or giving systematic instruction, especially at a school or a university. Or look it up on Wikipedia, and you get this. Education is a purposeful activity directed at achieving certain aims, such as transmitting knowledge or fostering skills and character traits. Aristotle stated that education is the process of training man to fulfill his aim by exercising all the faculties to the fullest extent as a member of society. Now this is what the world tells us education is. But what about God? Does God have a say about education? We would all as Christians say that God created all things. Proverbs 16.4 states that God has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. This is a very sobering verse covering all things, even the bad things, as being instituted by God for his purposes. So does this include education? Well, yes, it does. And so yes, God who created humans with the nature of curiosity to think and to do and to create has instituted education. So as we start our homeschool journey, or if we have been homeschooling and feel burnt out, we need to also think biblically about education. 
First, I want to lay out for you a couple arguments of why we need to think biblically about education. Number one is, this makes our purpose for homeschooling solid. If we understand God's purpose for education and we align ourselves with it and trust it, we are blessed. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah seventeen seven to 8 Aligning ourselves with God's purpose for education roots us firmly in Him as we set about to achieve His goal. Another reason why we should think biblically about education is because it will bring us to trust God, the creator of our children, and the one who knows them best. The third reason for why we need to think biblically about this is built off of reason number one and two. Trusting God will cast out fear of not being able to educate our children, of not feeling adequate. As Jeremiah explains, one who trusts in the Lord is rooted firmly and has no need to fear or be anxious under any pressure or heat. Thinking biblically about education will help us to understand that in the same way that God created children to learn, God also brings us parents who once were children to teach their own. That is the purpose of the family. That is why God instituted it. And the fourth reason is this. If we have aligned ourselves with God's purpose for education, we will plan accordingly. And so choose curriculum, activities, subjects, etc. in wisdom that is always guided by God's purpose. Here's an example. Curriculums are built around a philosophy. These philosophies are guided by certain beliefs. The belief about how one learns or comes to knowledge, which is called epistemology. The belief of the nature of man or being, which is called ontology. Teleology is a study and theory of purpose and the purpose of things or goal of things. Axiology is the study and theory of value, what is valuable or good. Now within this is the theory of beauty or aesthetics, beauty or good in the physical realm and the study or what is valuable and good as in morality, being beauty and good or value in the metaphysical realm. And also there's sociology, the study or theory of society. What one believes about man, ontology, how he arrives at knowledge, epistemology, what man's purpose is, teleology, what one believes is good and right, axiology, and how one thinks society should be run, or what its goal is, sociology, will direct the philosophy one uses to educate. Now we will look at this briefly in a bit. But for this example, just understand that every curriculum has a philosophy of education behind it. So take um, classical Christian education, that man has three stages of learning, what they call the trivium, what is taught and the way it is taught in this curriculum, or a classical Christian curriculum, is guided by the belief of these stages. If you believe that man naturally learns this way and is the best way to arrive at knowledge, then a classical Christian curriculum will likely be your choice. Now, most of us grew up being taught the world's teachings on how to be successful. The government school system is the means by which our nation has implemented these teachings. 
You simply present a thought towards homeschooling and you are bombarded with questions that actually come from these teachings. Questions that come from the zeitgeist of education. These assumptions we just naturally assume. What about socialization? How are you going to teach them all the subjects they need to know to be success successful? Are you qualified? Etc. Etc. See, these questions are the result of the success of the lies that our society has inculcated in our culture. The lie that the government knows best on what education is and how to educate your children. Listen very carefully. Every doubt and hesitation or concern you have in regards to educating the children God in his sovereignty gave you are a result of their lies. For God created and instituted the family to be the means by which children are to be trained up. God instructs fathers and mothers to train their children. The fifth commandment assumes that parents are teaching and training their children by which they are instructed to honor and obey. God has created your children and given them to you for this very reason. The world wants you to doubt that God knew exactly what he was doing when he gave you your children and believe that they know better. Our doubts and insecurities in regards to this come from believing the lie the world tells us and not believing the truth of God's word. So now that I've laid the argument out for why we need to think biblically about education, let's think biblically about education. I want to take a short period of time looking at the world's purpose for education. And for this, I will play about a seven minute clip laying out for you the seven main philosophies of education that have developed over the years. Education student. You have been acquainted with various philosophies. Essentialism. Perennialism. Progressivism. Existentialism. Behaviorism. Constructivism. Reconstructionism. But, have you fully understand what these philosophies mean? In this video, you will know better the known philosophies that influence the teaching profession. What does philosophy mean? The word philosophy comes from two Greek words, philo and sophos. Philo means love, sophos means wisdom. Literally then, philosophy means love of wisdom. The philosophy of education examines the goals, forms, methods, and meaning of education. It is important to understand how philosophy and education are interrelated. In order to become the most effective teacher you can be, you must understand your own beliefs, while at the same time empathizing with others. Let's start to learn more about the known philosophies of education. Essentialism Perennialism Progressivism Existentialism Behaviorism Constructivism And Reconstructionism First on the list, Essentialism. Essentialism advocates training the mind with what are essential. 
In this philosophical school of thought, the aim is to instill students with the essentials of academic knowledge, enacting a back-to-basics approach. The emphasis of education is on academic content for students to learn the basic skills or the fundamental arts such as reading, writing, arithmetic and right conduct. Essentialist teachers emphasize mastery of subject matter. They are expected to be intellectual and moral models of their students. They observe core requirements and longer academic year. Next philosophy is perennialism. Perennialism in education is the belief that schools should teach ideas that are everlasting. You can remember the word perennialism by remembering that perennial means lasting for many years. The goal of a perennialist education is to teach students to think rationally and develop minds that can think critically. The perennialist curriculum is a universal one. What the perennialist teachers teach are lifted from classic and great books. The perennialist classrooms are teacher-centered. Students engaged in Socratic dialogue, or mutual inquiry sessions to develop an understanding of history's most timeless concepts. Next philosophy is progressivism. Progressivism is the idea that education comes from the experience of the child. Progressivist aims to develop learners into becoming enlightened and intelligent citizens. Progressivists use a curriculum that responds to students' needs and that relates to their personal lives and experience. Teachers teach students things that are practical for life and encourage them to grow into better people. They also teach students the skills to cope with change. Progressivist teachers employ experiential methods. They believe that one learns by doing. Another known philosophy of education is existentialism. Existentialism in education focuses on the individual's freedom to choose their own purpose in life. The main concern of existentialists is to help students understand and appreciate themselves as unique individuals who accept complete responsibility for their thoughts, feelings, and actions. In existentialist curriculum, students are given a wide variety of options from which to choose. Humanities are given tremendous emphasis. Existentialist methods focus on the individual. Learning is self-paced and self-directed. Next is the behaviorism philosophy. Behaviorism focuses on the acquisition of new behavior based on environmental conditions. Behaviorists are concerned with the modification and shaping of students' behavior by providing for a favorable environment, since they believe that we are product of our environment. Behaviorist teachers teach students to respond favorably to various stimuli in the environment. Teachers arrange environmental conditions so that students can make the responses to stimuli. They provide reinforcement and punishment to reinforce positive responses and weaken or eliminate negative ones. Another known philosophy of education is constructivism. Constructivism says that people construct their own understanding and knowledge of the world through experiencing things and reflecting on those experiences. 
constructivist aims to develop intrinsically motivated and independent learners equipped with learning skills for them to be able to construct knowledge and make meaning of them. Students are taught how to learn. They are taught learning processes and skills. The constructivist teacher provides students with data or experiences that allow them hypothesize, predict, manipulate, pose questions, research and invent. The last philosophy that we will tackle in this video is Reconstructionism. Reconstructionism or critical theory is a philosophy that emphasizes the addressing of social questions in a quest to create a better society and worldwide democracy. Reconstructionist educators focus on a curriculum that highlights social reform as the aim of education. For Reconstructionists, curriculum focuses on students taking social action in solving real problems such as environmental problems, hunger, international terrorism, inflation, and inequality. Reconstructionists deals with social issues through inquiry, dialogue, and multiple perspectives. Community-based learning and bringing the world into the classroom are also utilized. Here are the known philosophies of education with their keywords. Essentialism, learning the essential like the three R's. Perennialism, utilizing the great books. Progressivism, learning by doing. Existentialism, having individual choice. Behaviorism, modifying behavior. Constructivism, constructing meaning. Reconstructionism, having social reform. Do you have questions about these philosophies? Okay. Essentialism, perennialism, progressivism, existentialism, behaviorism, constructivism, and reconstructionism. Now, government schools exercise bits and pieces of these philosophies in their classrooms, though we are beginning to see how reconstructionism or critical theory became the main course served at most public schools and because of COVID, I believe the hand of God has been at work here, has exposed and opened the eyes of his people to this false ideology. But there are three major motivations behind these philosophies that I want to bring to your attention. These motivations explain how philosophies change over time depending on the desired outcome or purpose of education. The first motivation is to make virtuous humans. The second motivation is an economic one, to equip individuals for working environments, producing productive individuals in a growing economy. The third motivation is a social ideological one, to produce ideologues, individuals who will promote and help institute a religion or ideology, such as critical race theory, the government is God, um, liberalism, etc. Usually a goal towards humanistic utopian society is the driving force behind this motivation. Our modern idea of education, its structures, the philosophies, the motivation and purpose for education comes from men such as Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Hegel, Rousseau, Aquinas, Locke, Dewey, Count, Skinner, Hobbes, etc. Men. Some who acknowledged God but most who didn't. Their philosophies, their teachings of how humans come to knowledge and understanding, and how one should be trained in this world has seeped into our consciousness whether we know it or not, 
especially if you were brought up by the government. The West's current philosophy of education is predicated on one belief, one statement that culminated from the Enlightenment, that is, that God is dead. Frederick Nietzsche, in his book The Gay Science, also known as Joyous Wisdom, tells the parable of the madman who proclaims that God is dead. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I am looking for God, I am looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing there, he excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one. Did he lose his way like a child, said another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? he cried. I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done this? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from the sun? Whether is it moving now? Whether are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming on all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods, simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. That was from Frederick Nietzsche's The Gay Science, page 181 to 182. Nietzsche envisioned a world without God as being one where education set man free from God's law and requirements, when setting man at liberty to discover his true self and live his true self without guilt and without the judgment of a holy transcendent being. This is the philosophy, the underlying current that has been perpetuated in educational institutions today, institutions that house grave diggers who try to bury God, and the product of our modern educational system has built a society of beings who now believe their true self can be anything they want it to be, depending on their feelings, people who create their own laws and regulations crying out that they have personal autonomy, and that they will not be judged, but instead have created for themselves a God who delights in their wickedness. God, through the Apostle Paul, warns us in Colossians 2, 8-10, that we see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Colossians 2, 8-10 See, God is not dead and cannot be buried, yet we may act like he is, relying on man's philosophy and empty deceit, trusting in the Western human tradition and philosophies of education that are directed by the elemental spirits, or in other translations, the elementary principles of this world. Elemental spirits are directly tied to regulations, human precepts, and teachings, as verse 20 to 22 explain in the same chapter. Within Paul's warning is an understanding that man, apart from Christ, creates beliefs or philosophies that originate from these regulations, precepts, and teachings, all of which are derived from human traditions or philosophies, and all which are empty deceit. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, all knowledge and understanding that the world says one must be educated in is, in the end, worthless in the grand scheme of things. Ultimately, what your child knows of arithmetic, science, U.S. and world history, how to affect society, etc., will not be tested at the end of this age. But only one thing will we need to know in God's test, and that is Christ. You may say, yes, Mal, we understand that in the end we must know Christ to be saved, to enter into eternity with God. But what about this side of eternity? What about my child finding a job and being able to support themselves and live a happy, productive life on this side of eternity? Well, I want to challenge the world's goal of education. See, the same goal that some of you may wish to achieve through homeschooling. I want to challenge what we know as the world's purpose of education is. That is, to prepare them or train them to enter society and be well-adjusted, successful individuals by their standards. And my challenge is this. Who sets the standard? Who decides what it means to be well-adjusted? Who decides what it means to be successful? Who determines what is good for society? Who determines what it means to be educated? Do we as Christians answer these questions with what the world has to say? Do we go to psychology to determine how to be well-adjusted, how to be happy, how to live? Do we look to men of business or rules of economics and success to determine what success looks like? Is it measured by materials, products, and wealth? Do we go to sociologists and the humanities to determine how we flourish in society? Do we trust in curriculum, textbooks, and styles of learning to train up our children in the way that they should go. If I could impress only one thing on your heart, as you live out God's will in your homeschooling journey, it would be this, that ultimately, all you need to teach, train, or educate your children is found in Scripture. Sure, order curriculum. Teach your children the subjects you feel would be useful to their development and assist them in their occupations. But need... There is only one subject that is truly needed, Christ himself, and he is found in only one textbook, Scripture. Now, I want to think about the life of Paul for a bit as an example, 
and then talk about God's sovereignty in our children's lives and the doctrine of vocation to help lay this out for you. Before Paul was called by Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he was known as Saul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. While we understand Pharisees to be strict adherents to the Jewish laws, what is most often unknown is the involvement of Pharisees in Jewish society. The Pharisees that Jesus dealt with were men much like our state politicians or lawyers of today. The Pharisees were a type of political party in a way, much like the conservative party of our time. The Pharisees had their roots in the group of faithful Jews known as the Hasidim, which arose in the 2nd century BC when the influence of Hellenism on the Jews became prominent. Hellenistic Jews lived similarly to their Gentile neighbors, while the Hasidim insisted on strict observance of Jewish ritual laws. A Hellenistic Jew within the Sanhedrin may look at the law in a more progressive light, having a more fluid interpretation of it, while a Pharisaic Jew would hold to conserving the law and hold fast to the rituals as a means of being righteous before God. Luke 18.9 After the Maccabean Revolt in 160 BC, and during the period of independence that followed, some of the Greek rulers who controlled Palestine favored the, Par the Pharisaic party, and as a result, the Pharisees came to be represented on the Sanhedrin, the supreme court and legislative body of the Jews. In the New Testament times, the Pharisaic scribes, though probably in the minority, were still a part of the Sanhedrin. And I set this up to give you an understanding of the education and training that Saul was raised up in. Saul was on the political path taught by the most prominent member of the Sanhedrin and teacher of the law at that time, Gamaliel. The equivalent of his education in our time would be like having a New Jersey state judge personally train your child. And yet it is this man who, after meeting Christ, declared that his education, all that was taught him, his zeal, and any righteous living that he may have learned in his past, be counted as rubbish compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else think he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. That was Philippians 3, 4-11. Paul, in his calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ, doesn't go on to pursue a career among the Sanhedrin like his mentor Gamaliel, but in the pursuit of Christ becomes a common tent maker, and yet God uses him mighty, mightily for his purposes to accomplish his will. It is in this knowledge that Paul is determined to know nothing among the believers but Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, and prays for God's people. 
Now listen to one of Paul's prayer for the Colossians church and see if this would not be a prayer you may pray for your children. Paul in Colossians 1, 9-12 states, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Is it so far-fetched to believe that in knowing nothing but Christ, our children may live out this prayer? Do we not, as Christian parents, desire this for our children as well? If so, what are the means that cause our children to bear the fruit of this prayer? What type of education causes our children to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, endurance, and patience with joy? Scripture. Scripture is the means. Again, Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen. Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that our children may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Before I wrap up this workshop, I want to encourage you by pointing you to two things tightly woven together in the involvement of training up our children. Two things that, if understood rightly, will guide you without fear in your homeschooling journey. Both are doctrines lost in our modern purpose-driven church culture of today. Both are centered on the sovereignty of God, an attribute that is so often ignored. These two lost doctrines are called the doctrine of vocation and the doctrine of providence. When we talk about vocation today, we think in terms of career. For most of us, the end goal of education is just that, a career. And we believe that this career is what will determine a successful life. Education determines our career. The career determines our wage. And our wage determines our worth and our comfort. The career is a means by which we are provided clothing, food, shelter, etc. Yes, our Job or career is a means by which God provides these things to us, but we in our sinful nature can tend to depend on a chosen career to provide when Christ calls us to seek God's kingdom first, and then all provision will be given. After explaining that man cannot serve both God and money, Christ states, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or your children's lives, my my introduction there, <laughs> what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew six twenty-five to 33 Most of us have been told that God has a purpose for our lives, and usually our career is that purpose. This purpose or calling in your, on your life is determined subjectively by how we feel our lives should be lived and is the means by which God will change the world. And in pursuit of that purpose, we live out the best God has for our lives, thereby becoming successful in this world. But scripture speaks differently about the will of God for our lives and what success is. First, God's will is not subjective, but is laid out clearly for us in his word. He wills that we believe in Christ and be saved from the wrath to come, 1 Timothy 2.3. He wills that we give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, that we be sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.15-20, and that we do good works which God prepared beforehand that we walk in, Ephesians 2.10, and he wills that we love him and love our neighbor, Matthew 22.36-40. Accomplishing these things by his grace, through his Spirit, and because of Christ, is success by God's standards. It is these doctrines are living in light of our vocation through God's providence that we display the glory of God and actively love our neighbor. So I will be quoting from Jean Edward Meath Jr.'s book, God at Work, extensively here. If you wish to understand God's work in vocation, I highly recommend you get his book. Mr. V states in describing the history of the doctrine of vocation this, quote, Today in an age of unbelief, many of the old theological words remain, even after the face that gave them meaning is gone. For example, people who know nothing of the authority of scripture still use words like inspiration and revelation, applying them to a work of art or to a business idea. Vision, mission, spirit, and even more technical terms such as canon, hermeneutics, and synergism are all examples of the theological language drained of its original content and turned to more secular senses. Vocation also has a common meaning today. It has become just another term for job, as in vocational training or vocational education. The term, though, is a theological word. It reflects a rich body of biblical teaching about work, family, society, and the Christian life. The term vocation comes from the Latin word for calling. The scripture is full of passages that describe how we have been called to faith through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, how God calls us to a particular office or way of life, 1 Corinthians 1.1-2 and 7.15-20. The doctrine of vocation is thoroughly biblical, but as with other scriptural teachings, it surfaced and was developed with its greatest rigor during the Reformation. In the medieval church, having a vocation or having a calling referred exclusively to full-time church work. 
If a person felt a calling, this was a sign that he or she might have a vocation, which meant becoming a priest, a monk, or a nun. The ordinary occupations of life, being a peasant farmer or kitchen maid, making tools or clothing, being a soldier or even a king, were acknowledged as necessary but worldly. Such people could be saved, but they were mirrored in the world. To serve God fully, to live life that is truly spiritual, required a full-time commitment. The counsels of perfection could be fulfilled only in the holy orders of the church, in which a man or woman could devote every day to prayer, contemplation, worship, and the service of God. Even marriage and parenthood, though recognized as good things, were mar with marriage understood as a sacrament from God, were seen as encumbrances to the religious life. Having a vocation meant, among other things, the willingness and the ability to live a celibate life. The Reformation came about out of a conviction that the Church had drifted away from the truths of God's Word, focusing on salvation through humanly invented works, as opposed to the gospel of forgiveness through the work of Christ. In scrutinizing the existing ecclesiastical system in light of the gospel and the scriptures, the reformers insisted that priests and nuns and monastics did not have a special claim to God's favor, but that lay people too could live the Christian life to its fullest. The Reformation notion of the priesthood of all believers by no means denigrated the pastoral office, as is often assumed or taught that pastors or church workers were unnecessary, or taught that everybody could come up with their own theology for themselves. Rather, it taught that the pastoral office is a vocation, a calling from God with its own responsibilities, authority, and blessings. But it also taught that lay people as well have vocations, callings of their own, that entail holy responsibilities, authorities, and blessings of their own. Not all believers were pastors or church workers. They do not have to be in order to be perfect before God, a status attained through the blood of Christ. But all believers are priests. All believers, like the priests of the Old Testament, can come into the presence of God through the blood of the Lamb. All believers can handle holy things, such as a Bible, earlier denied to the laity. All can proclaim the gospel to those who need it its saving message. The priesthood of all believers means that all Christians enjoy the same access to Christ and are spiritually equal before Him. The priesthood of all believers did not make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turned every kind of work into a sacred calling. A major issue at the time was the prohibition of marriage for people in the religious orders. The reformers looked at scripture and insisted that marriage is ordained by God and that the family, far from being something less spiritual than the life of a hermit or anchorite, is the arena for some of the most important spiritual work. A father and a mother are priests to their children, not only taking care of their physical needs, but nursing them in the faith. Every kind of work including what had heretofore been looked down upon, the work of peasants and craftsmen, is an occasion for priesthood, for exercising a holy service to God and to one's neighbor. End quote, page 17 to 19. So what is this doctrine of vocation exactly? 
More from Mr. Veith Jr. Quote, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, observed Luther, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And he does give us our daily bread. He does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, the person who prepared our meal. We might today add the truck drivers who hauled the produce, the factory workers in the food processing plant, the warehouse men, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys, the lady at the checkout counter. Also playing their part are the bankers, future investors, advertisers, lawyers, agricultural scientists, mechanical engineers, and every other player in the nation's economic system. All of these were instrumental in enabling you to eat your morning bagel. Before you ate, you probably gave thanks to God for your food as is fitting. He is caring for your physical needs, as with every other kind of needs you have, preserving your life through his gifts. He provides food for those who fear him, Psalm 111.5. Also, to those who do not fear him, to all flesh, 136.25. And he does so by using other human beings. It's still God who is responsible for giving us our daily bread, though he could give it to us directly by a miraculous provision, as he wanted for the children of Israel when he fed them daily with manna. God has chosen to work through human beings who, in their different capacities and according to their different talents, serve each other. This is the doctrine of vocation. To use another of Luther's examples, God could have decided to populate the earth by creating each new person from the dust as he did Adam. Instead, he just created new life through the vocation of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. God calls men and women together and grants them the unfathomable ability to have children. He calls people into families in which, through the love and care of the parents, he extends his love and care for children. This is the doctrine of vocation. When we or a loved one gets sick, we pray for healing. Certainly God can and sometimes does grant healing through a miracle, but normally he grants healing through the vocations of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, lab technicians, and the like. It is still God who heals, but works through the means of skilled, talented, divinely equipped human beings. When God blesses, he must always does it through other people. The ability to read God's word is an inexpressible, precious blessing, but reading is an ability that did not spring fully formed in our young minds. It required the vocation of teachers. God protects us through the cop on the beat and the whole panoply of the legal system. He gives us beauty and meaning through artists. He lets us travel through the ministry of auto workers, mechanics, road crews, and airline employees. He keeps us clean through the work of garbage collectors, plumbers, sanitation workers, and the maids who clean our hotel rooms. He brings people to salvation through pastors and through everyone else who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. The fast food worker, the inventor, the clerical assistant, the scientist, the accountant, the musician, they all have high callings used by God to bless and serve his people and his creation. It is odd that such a liberating, life-enhancing doctrine has become all but forgotten in our time, passed over in our seminary sermons and Bible classes, but the doctrine of vocation makes up an important part of a spiritual heritage 
that contemporary Christians have, unfortunately, cut themselves off from and are in such great need of recovering. It is more than an understanding of work, more than the slogan that we should do all things for the glory of God, more than a vague theological platitude. The teachings on the subject by the old Reformation theologians are remarkably specific and realistic, giving practical guidance for how this doctrine can be lived out in a real fallen world. But more than that, the doctrine of vocation amounts to a comprehensive doctrine of the Christian life having to do with faith and sanctification, grace and good works. It is key to Christian ethics and shows how Christians can influence their culture. It transfigures ordinary, everyday life with the presence of God. End quote. Page 13 to 17. Like Mr. Veith proclaims, the doctrine of vocation is more than merely doing all things for the glory of God. The doctrine of vocation, understood rightly, is our faith in the providence of God put in action. Another quote from God at Work talks about the providence of God in this way. Quote, Our usual view of God today is that he's not part of the external world outside of ourselves. He is either far above the everyday world or he is inside us. The world, we assume, runs pretty much on its own. The truth is, God does indeed transcend his creation, but he also governs it. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, says the Apostle Paul, he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17:25 and 27 to 28. Christians in the past have taken for granted the notion of God's providence. Coming from the word to provide, the term refers not just to God's control in a deterministic sense, but to God's care that he exercises over everything that exists. One of the consequences of modernity that secularizing frame of mind that has been dominant in the culture from the Enlightenment to the last century has meant to drain any trace of God, even any trace of meaning, from the objective world. Science, it has been thought, fully accounts for everything in nature and society. Rational but impersonal natural laws explain everything that exists. Religion is fine if someone needs it, but it's a wholly private matter. A inner, experiential, mystical set of feelings that might make a person feel better, but that can have no bearing on the real world. Page 26 to 27. But Christianity is not simply a religion. It's not merely a private matter. Christianity is a lifestyle, a way of living in a sinful world under the directions of the one who has been given all authority under heaven and earth. And we, in our homes and in our vocations, are called to love, serve, and make disciples, not merely because Jesus has simply told us to, but because Christ is our King. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20 Now apply these doctrines to how we can think biblically about educating our children. At the very core is the knowledge that God is sovereign over our children's lives. He created them. They are his workmanship, and if they have come to know Christ, will accomplish the good works that God has prepared beforehand for them to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. This includes the good work of being an obedient child, the good work of being a diligent student, a hard-working young adult, a strong, persevering mid-adult, and a wise and enduring 
elder. All of this in whatever God calls them to, all under God's providence. The doctrine of God's providence and the doctrine of vocation undermine the world's concept of education and career. The world looks at education as a way to prove yourself by performing to their standards. Most of us who homeschool after being under government education, coming out of this mentality can be a challenge. We take the world's standards at grade levels, preschool, first grade, high school, etc., the developmental milestones, reading by age 5, algebra by ninth grade, etc., the grade marks and GPA, and we use these as identifiers. We think we have or are educating our children well by these standards, pushing our children to perform and meet them. And after having met that standard of education, to be successful in their adult life, they must choose a career that not only makes them feel good, but also one that society looks upon with honor and respect. Both doctrines flip worldly wisdom in education and career life on its head. Biblical education toward our children's vocation is to learn wisdom, honor, and obedience, and gain knowledge and understanding in God's word. The way in which these things are judged are not by facts, tests, and grades, but by character and how one walks. In terms of careers, these doctrines affect one's choice and career, not based on building up the self by gaining honor and respect from the world, but giving honor and respect to God in whatever work one chooses. If a child fails at this world's idea of education and works his whole life at McDonald's, and in faith serves his Savior by serving his neighbor in that way, God is well pleased. Yes, God in his providence, through all of human vocations, even in the calling of a janitor at a Taco Bell, when they are done in faith towards him, please him. So in conclusion, what does all this have to do with education and your homeschooling journey? Well, one... The world's idea of education is vanity, worthless, burdensome, and empty deceit. Let us cast it aside and think about education biblically. Let us go to God who gives wisdom generously and without reproach to all who ask for it. James 1, 5. 2. God, creator of all things, created you and worked in your life providentially. If you, by faith, have put your trust in Christ, his work on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead for your justification, then you were predestined by God, called by him, justified by him, are being sanctified by him, and will be glorified by him. Romans eight twenty nine to 30 All things work for your good and his glory. Romans eight twenty eight. And so God, in his providence, has called you as parents to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. And in God's providence, he has written a textbook by which you can train up your children in this way, as it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training them up to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 3. These good works will be the fruit of God's education through the means of your homeschooling, resulting in the callings or vocations that God has predestined for your children. 
whatever talents, goals, or motivations your children have, even if it is to be a stay-at-home mother, or a business entrepreneur, a mailman, or doctor, fast food server, or politician, from the smallest to the greatest, God is at work through them. If our children know Christ and serve Him in the most menial of jobs, God is well pleased with them, and so should we be. This type of thinking, when we have educated our children rightly and biblically with Christ at the center, casts out all fear over our children, for if they are seeking first the kingdom of God, all other needs are taken care of for them by God himself. Matthew six twenty-five to 33. So, in this workshop, I hope I have made the case for why we need to think biblically about education and uphold scripture as God's education, God's textbook for training up our children. In my next workshop, I want to address how or the way which we implement this education in our homes, and more specifically, what the end result of biblical education is. Wisdom. Thank you. So ladies, I hope that that has benefited you. And like always, I'm just praying that you are daily searching the scriptures, um, getting close to God, being guided by the Holy Spirit, and just abiding in Christ. I pray that you are in His Word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.